Throughout 2022, we released quite a number of episodes with a focus on the affordability challenge faced by both buyers and renters. We also looked at the impact climate change is having on where we live and what we live in. And we've had a discourse running through the past five years about the risks of buying brand new apartments, from poor quality right through to negative equity. And while we've been talking about all of these problems and our governments have been failing to address them, some people have been quietly going about the business of doing something about it. Is it possible that these challenges don't belong in the too hard basket after all? Welcome to the elephant in the room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent and buyer's agent mentor, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia, author of Auction Ready and co-host of Your First Home Buyer Guide. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker, recently ranked number five in Australia out of over 18,000 brokers in the annual MPA Top 100 Mortgage Broker Award. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of an appropriate and experienced professional. You may have heard about Nightingale Housing, and to Sydney siders, it might seem a utopian. Architect-designed apartments in desirable urban locations available at affordable prices. In Melbourne, of course, not in Sydney. Now, where people queue not only to get into the market, but to be part of a vibrant community and to top it all off, the buildings are carbon neutral. Oh, sounds like heaven. Today, we're going to get to the lowdown on this and how it all came about, how it works from one of the co-founders, Jeremy McLeod. Jeremy is the founding director of Breathe, which is one of Australia's leading sustainable architectural practices. And in addition to being the co-founder of Nightingale Housing, he's head of partnerships at Goodbye Gas. Now, Jeremy continues to make significant contributions to the future of sustainable, carbon-neutral and affordable housing in Australia, tirelessly pushing for industry and government to do better for a country in housing and climate crisis. He is relentless in his advocacy for a net zero emissions future and believes that architects, through collaboration, can drive positive change. So, welcome, Jeremy. We're looking forward to learning more about what can be done to address some of our biggest housing problems in this country. Thanks heaps, Veronica. Um, good to see you. Hi, Chris. Hi, Jeremy. Um, thanks so much for coming on. I mean, we have spoken about Nightingale. We've been going for almost five years, Veronica, which is crazy. Um, and all the way back to our early episodes, we were aware of Nightingale and so good to have this conversation. If we went through all our uh, scripts or our transcripts, I mean, there'd probably be so many mentions of it. And I, I think it's just a very innovative, forward-thinking, social, you know, environmental, sustainable sort of way of looking at tackling a problem. At, and you've got some scale. You've done lots of uh, uh, sort of projects now. Can you tell us a bit more about the story behind Nightingale, what you're trying to achieve and sort of how it came about and what's the sort of longer-term vision? Yeah, look, thanks heaps for having me on. And uh, also thank you both for trying to help a generation get into housing. Like I think it's been, you know, it's been pretty harrowing to watch as a... Uh, <laughs> As a member of our society and as a father of four daughters that are now kind of, you know, getting close to 30, um, my only saving grace is that they're in Melbourne, not in Sydney. <laughs> yeah, that's the, the one, one benefit. But um, yeah, look, I, I guess, you know, I care deeply about sustainability, always have. I studied uh, sustainability. My parents were hippies. My dad took me to, you know, Parliament House when I was 11 on a on a bus with a whole bunch of public public housing tenants to kind of, you know, lobby the government not to close public housing. So I think that I was brought up caring about the environment and caring about 
social justice and equity. And then I got, you know, as I, as I finished my architecture degree and started working as an architect, you know, and started working on, you know, glass towers and, uh, I started thinking, you know, how is this sustainable and how is this affordable and, um, and how is this equitable, you know, from the 88th floor looking down on the specs on the street. So I, I kind of thought a lot about that. In early 2000s, I started a practice called Breathe Architecture. And the idea of Breathe was that, you know, this really simple idea that uh, every room would have a window that would open. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so novel. Pretty low, low, low bar, right? Um, <laughs> that was the idea. And um, interestingly, you know, we've always had a pretty strong uh, sustainability focus. Um, and Breathe kind of, you know, blew up, you know. So it became, you know... Uh, the idea of sustainability used to be seen as niche and it used to be, you, know, uh. you need, you need to have a, a pair of Hessian underpants, you know, <laughs> you need to, um, build everything out of mud, brick and corrugated iron. I think that was the idea right in the seventies, which is mm. probably yeah. why, probably why it died by the, by the nineties. And then, you know, our, our kind of view is that, you know, sustainability needs to just be built into anything or it needs to be built into everything. It needs mm. to be mainstream. It, it shouldn't be niche or you shouldn't feel like you need to be on one side of politics or you shouldn't uh, you, you shouldn't feel like you need to be an environmental warrior to actually care about you know the future of the planet and uh <laughs> all of those things right and also it shouldn't cost you more it should just mm -hmm. be you know the things that we do in as part of our everyday practice so you know you might be both laughing thinking how naive does this guy sound <laughs> No, so, for me, it seems like common sense. <laughs> it's, it, that's right. So for me, uh, people have accused me of being incredibly naive, but I think to me, Veronica, I agree, right? It just feels like this is, this is what the common sense approach should be. And then in 2007, I got together with kind of five of my friends, so my partner Tamara and I got together with five of our friends, most of whom were architects, and we bought this piece of land and we wanted to deliver on what the city of Melbourne were doing. So they were rolling out their postcode 3000 where their city architect, Rob Adams, had said, look, we can house actually two-thirds of our housing growth problem mm. along major public transport routes, so tram lines, high streets, train lines, in small urban villages at kind of six to eight storeys. So we don't need to be building, you know, 80 storeys, 100 storeys, you sure. know. We don't need to be building kind of, you know, multiple CBDs. We can actually be building a series of villages, yep. you know, amongst existing infrastructure. And, you know, the city of Melbourne had looked at examples, you know, all across Europe, you know, you think about, you know, Barcelona or Rome or Paris, yep. proven track record of really great urban outcomes. Um, um, where, where we were located in, um, <laughs> at that time it was called, you know, our Moreland City Council has just been renamed because... As it turns out, it was named after a slavery plantation. So it's now Merrybeck Council. Um, but where we were situated here, it's also known as the People's Republic. It was known as the People's Republic of Moreland locally. Right. It's a very left-leaning um, yep. place. We bought a piece of land here right on top of a train station and said, well, let's try and deliver on this granular, at a granular level on what the city of Melbourne are talking about. And what, you know, what our local council were talking about as well and kind of trying to build a new urban village on old industrial land. So we bought this little site and we embarked on this project back then called Dightingale Apartments, you know, and it was 24 apartments. It was meant to be car-free, carbon-free. It was meant to focus on building community. 
using lots of really kind of uh, simple simple techniques that we'd seen in Sweden, in Stockholm, yeah. uh, in Berlin, in Freiburg, in Germany, uh, you know, in Copenhagen. And none of it was expensive, right? It was really simple moves that people have been doing in the apartment space for a hundred years. <laughs> and we're like, okay, well, you know, if that works there, why don't we do it here? And then we kind of layered in with that a layer of uh, sustainability, which was the, this this question of if we don't need it, can we take it out? So it was this yep. sustainability of reductionism rather than the sustainability of additionality, adding in, you <laughs> know, because normally the way you do it is you build a glass tower, you put in heaps and heaps of solar, you put in lots of green tech and it becomes very expensive and you've got a lot of operating costs associated with that um, and some maintenance issues, you know, so... We wanted to make it really low tech, uh, really simple and really replicable and affordable and build on community, right? And so what does that look like? Like, what is that? It sounds crazy. Um, but again, Veronica, it's not. It's actually, it just makes common sense. So we started with the most contentious issue, of course, which is about cars. So in Australia, our, well, you know, I'm not sure about Sydney, but in Melbourne, I met with researchers that talk about our initial car parking numbers here were developed by the Texas Department of Transport and Infrastructure <laughs> in 1966, right? Wow. That's that's when the car lobby had kind of worked their way through the American political and planning system, and everyone decided to build housing, you needed car parking. Sure. That came across the Pacific to Australia. And so we decided, you know, in the late 60s that we needed to attach cars to housing and they needed to be, you know, geospatially co-located. And since then, despite the fact that we have a climate crisis and a housing crisis, we've never decoupled car ownership from housing. Yeah, yeah. You know, and when yet, you say that part of that is because of the urban sprawl, I mean, Melbourne's even further, like it's got a, a greater distance, I think, to cover than Sydney even does in terms of, you know, from A to B, from one point to the, the opposite point. So if you're going to be out there in a new subdivision, of course you've got to have car accommodation because there was no infrastructure. There's no train lines, no buses. So, but what you're saying in obviously in an urban area, you know, we've taken that same thinking into the into our urban space to say, oh, well, you need double parking if you've got a two bedroom apartment. So you're challenging that in a, in a more practical sense because obviously you've got the transport quite literally at your doorstep. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, if you think about um, going into a European village, which is what, you know, mm. when planners talk about, you know, building, you know, what, what we're in currently, the, the Anstey urban village, what that talks about is having local shops, local services, local dentists, local doctors, uh, close proximity to public transport. So here we have uh, bike paths. We're on a train station. We're next yep. to the 503 bus, next to the 508 bus, next to the 504 bus, next to the number 19 tram. Um, so it's all super, super close. Uh. Um, and so it, it makes total sense here. But I also think that sprawl, you know, it's a non-strategic housing solution, right? Uh. It's just like, here's, this is what exists, you know, in our society of how we live currently. Let's just see what the market delivers to solve for that rather than saying we need it. We need to deliver on the strategic plans of, you know, some, someone like the city of Melbourne or the city of Sydney. And how do we, you know, how do we do that? Also, uh, you know, uh, I look at, like, my sister lives in Italy. I've probably mentioned a number of times here, and she lives in the centre of a historical town. Um, they can only drive in because they've got a permit and they can drive into their building, to the courtyard, and then that's it. And most people can't drive in the town at all. 
and they do have everything within walking distance, but then you've got this sort of American style of supermarket on the outskirts. So you, the big shop, you get in the car, you drive to the outskirt, and that's quite um, foreign to Italians. It's not anymore, but it used to be. Um, where you'd go to the market, you, you know, you'd do, and they still do have a covered market, but that has shrunk over time as, as more people have relied on sort of the big supermarket and the outskirt. Because it's not just, you know, our subdivision is sprawling. Like what you're talking about is actually going backwards in time in a way. It's going back to a time when you did have that local, yeah. the local doctor or the local um, grocer. And, you know, uh, COVID sort of helped a little bit with this, don't you think, in terms of, um, re-establishing the importance of our what's within walking distance. Well, it did in Melbourne, Veronica, when you were locked down to a 5K radius of yeah. mm. for a large portion of the year, you got to you got to explore every inch of your local <laughs> suburb. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I actually think it did. But, yeah, I mean, it obviously helps in a number of ways, right, to, to engage with your local community, to help local businesses thrive. When yep. local businesses are thriving, the streets are active. When the streets are active, the streets are safer. Oh. Uh, there's a sense of connection and community that happens. There's, it's a great kind of, you know, carbon reduction story because no one's driving anywhere. People are walking around. People are fitter. You know, um, you know, people are less likely to be lonely. There's a whole bunch of reasons why that village life kind of, you know, works. It also, it doesn't just work for extroverts. It also works for introverts, <laughs> people who like to live alone. Uh, and choose to engage with people when they choose to. So it doesn't doesn't you don't have to be a particular type of person to live in a kind of you know a, this idea of a village, whether it be historic yep. or modern. And then the places like Freiburg in Germany kind of mixed and matched those things, saying if we're going to build housing, um, how how do we still accommodate for car ownership? Um, which looks like this, you know. And it was interesting. I heard your flying car. <laughs> um, episode. I loved it. Um, but you know, like, let's say that we're still going to have cars that people own till 2035, you know, how do we still build a city with a good sense of density that work as kind of a village scale, um, and don't have people driving everywhere like your sister in Italy or like, you know, even going to Milan, yeah. you know, you do need a permit to go to particular parts of Milan so you can drive in particular parts if you've got a permit. Otherwise it's just for taxis and delivery vehicles and yep. emergency vehicles. Otherwise... You walk or ride your bike, so it becomes incredibly safe for pedestrians and a great place to be. Yeah, yeah so in Freiburg, they have um, precinct parking. Uh, you know, Ljubljana in Slovenia has precinct parking. So you go to a place that might be 400 metres from your home and you park your car in a central yeah. precinct. You walk to your home from there. You can you can stop at the front of your house to drop your, your groceries off, but you have to go and park in the precinct parking. Why is that important? is because it's easier for you to walk to the local shop to get some uh, bread and milk and whatever it is that you need rather than getting in and going for the big shop. And so it encourages you um, to yeah. engage much more at the local scale rather than kind of at the, I guess, at the more suburban or city scale. So that, they, that city is designed about making it easier for pedestrian travel than it is for car travel, and they do that intentionally. And so... It has to be a very, you know, you have to consider, do I walk, do I ride, or do I take my car? Rather than just thinking, I'm just going to go downstairs, take the lift down, <laughs> jump in my car and drive out. Anyway, I digress. Uh, <laughs> I digress. So let me let me go back to this this project back in 2007. So the idea was zero car, zero yeah. carbon uh, community and affordability. That was the fundamental premise. 
And then we take out things like the basement car park and we saved $750,000 out of a $7.1 yeah. million dollar build and reduced everyone's apartment prices by nearly $40,000 each. Yeah. Mm. Where the basement entry would have been in the roller door, instead we put in a wine shop. <laughs> <laughs> and that wine shop was then sold in the feasibility for $415,000. And that $415,000 was then put back into the best insulation and the best double glazing we could buy. Yeah. We then got the building rating out at over seven and a half stars and all the thermal modelling said that in Melbourne's heating climate, we could get the building to operate without air conditioning. Um, and so then when we took the air conditioning out, we saved $360,000 and reduced the cost of everyone's apartment, but importantly also reduced their operating costs, Yeah, but still protected their, um, the internal thermal comfort. Um, you know, so we went through and then looked at uh, again, examples that we'd seen in Barcelona and in Stockholm of um, lots of two-bedroom apartments, only one bathroom, no en-suites. So we took out the en-suite and saved about $30,000 per apartment. And then all the living rooms got like seven square meters bigger. So they seemed more spacious. You know, like, uh. okay. And then we took out all of the individual laundries. Again, crazy idea, right? But again, looking at our friends in Stockholm in Sweden good enough for the Swedes, it's good enough for us. <laughs> um, so we took out all the individual laundries and all the apartments got two square meters bigger. So we don't have the European laundry and all the costs dropped by another $6,000 per apartment. And then we spend about $150,000 on the roof. So which, you know, which we put some of that money, those savings back in to building a killer rooftop laundry and a killer rooftop uh, garden. And so uh. the laundry overlooks this beautiful garden uh, outside clothesline, in amongst all of this vegetation, <laughs> overlooking the city. So it's this really beautiful experience. experience. Yeah. And so, it, you know, here's the here's the idea: we're going to try and sell a sell a building right next to a train line without cars, uh, without without a laundry, no laundries. <laughs> yeah, without laundry and no ensuite, no air conditioning. Um, let's see how that goes. And um, <laughs> anyway, we take it to market. And um, it sells off its head, right? And yeah. obviously, you know, Veronica, like Newtown or Marrickville in Sydney, you know, we sold the first project in Brunswick, which is a very left-leaning, you mm. know, sustainably-minded community. And we and we targeted that area specifically because, you know, after the Kevin 07 election, you know, everyone went pretty hard to the left. You know, everyone was talking about, you know, sustainability. We needed to be acting. <laughs> so it seemed like the right time. So that project kind of, you know, was born at that at that point. By the time, you know, we'd got a planning permit, uh, 2008 had been gone, the GFC had come and it had washed across the Pacific to us <laughs> and we lost our bank funding. And we got an impact investor called Small Giants to come in oh, yeah. and they funded the project through. So we were very lucky to have them. Sure. And by the and then the only difference that, you know, the big difference that they brought was that they changed the name from Nightingale to the Commons. That was their, you know, they said, let's let's change it because that's a, that sounds like a better name, a little bit more hippie. You know, people will get that more. So we're like, yeah, sure. <laughs> anyway, we finished the project. It wins the National Award for Housing and yeah. the National Award for Sustainability, which was incredible because that year it was up against One Central Park by the French architect yeah. Jean Nouvelle. Oh, yeah. And, you know, probably that lighting Oculus on top of the building was probably worth the same as, much, as, as yeah. our building cost to build. Yeah. And and when I spoke to the jury about how how could the Commons have possibly won against one Central Park, 
you know, because it's, I mean, it's, it's incredible in so many ways. Mm. Yeah. And, um, they said, oh, the people at the Commons seemed happy. <laughs> wow. Uh, which is pretty interesting. So I'm going to talk a little bit about what's happened to Nightingale since then, but I do want to talk to you both later on about sustainability in community and what we've seen in the marketplace as a result of that and how everyone around here now is now building that into their projects and it's mm. selling. Like it, there is a, you know, community seems to be worth a lot to people. So I'll come mm. back to that in a bit. But Yeah. Uh, and can I just ask you a question before we do move on to there? Couple, uh, of, of course. A couple of things. So obviously you're oversubscribed um, effectively on, on selling that. Um, is that part of that because of the, the cost and the price per apartment? You were able to shave so much off and make it more affordable. So the queue must have been huge at just off the back of that. Did, did you get people buying them that weren't necessarily on board with so much of the sustainability aspects of it and the community aspects of it were more attracted by the dollars? Oh, that's a, I mean, with the Commons, the first project, I don't know, Veronica, because that was, you know, it was untested at the mm. time. Mm. And so that was sold through, you know, a real estate agent, you know, a uh, young guy called Onda who sold it and kind of totally got it and worked out that if he was going to sell these things, he wouldn't wear a suit, he'd wear a T-shirt to the display suite. And Hessian undies. I mean, I mean <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Hessian undies <laughs> and a T-shirt, that's right. Probably a singlet, yeah. right? Um, but, but I mean, at that, and at that point in time too, Brunswick, you know, is still, yeah. and it's still a melting pot, right? Yeah. It's still going through some massive kind of, you know, I'd hate to say it, but it is gentrifying pretty hard at the moment. But at that point in time, there were two people shot and killed in the yep. building next door to the display suite, you know, you know, the day before the display suite opened. Right. So to give you some Rough. context, we weren't that, <laughs> yeah, small giants were pretty nervous about whether it was going to sell or not. But interestingly, um, it was kind of split between uh, mainly Gen Xs, uh, young couples, and also uh, older single women buying in. Yeah. 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 So, and the older single women that were buying in uh, were buying not just for sustainability, but also Security. for community. So there was yeah. twenty four apartments, and they thought that that, that 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 would be realised there. And and so, and I think that we're lucky that people actually, you know, had faith that you know, breathe, we're going to deliver on what we said. So I think the breed's reputation helped give people the confidence that that was going to be delivered upon. I think that what's happened since then with the establishment of Nightingale Housing, I think the thing that actually sells Nightingale housing is a sense of trust. Because if you think about, you know, Opal Tower, yep. Mascot Tower, the absolute distrust mm. in, you know, multi-res construction and the challenges that, that people have been facing, you know, post, post delivery, like, you know, why would you buy an apartment unless you thought that you could trust, you know, that it was going to be delivered well. And so. And maintained think, and the, you know, and, and cared about yeah. long-term, you know, that's, that's the, Issue. It might look great when you settle and you might be happy, but what happens six months time when, when things start to go wrong and what happens when, you know, investors move in and renters and the, the whole community shifts and yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So all, all of those things. And so I, I do think that, you know, what Nightingale has, and so Nightingale housing. So the commons was, um, you know, when small giants took it over, it was a profit for purpose project. Yeah, so it was delivered, you know, with purpose at the, at the outset. But they wanted, you know, some small return on their investment. Totally fair enough. Yeah. Um, and they did a great job. And they went down to deliver the commons in Hobart, which one of the Nightingale team called me last week and said it's actually really great, you know, and pretty challenging building in uh, Hobart climate as well. 
Um, but after we completed the Commons and we won the National Award for Housing and the National Award for Sustainability, people started emailing us saying, you know, if you're going to do another one of these things, can you let us know? And so, um, you know, I, I thought that was a good idea. <laughs> and so um, I wrote uh, what became the, the Nightingale Manifesto, which was which was fundamentally setting out, you know, this idea about, you know, a triple bottom line housing, that it was about, you know, sustainability, it was about um, affordability, and it was about community. And then the affordability piece was really kind of looking at how do we cap the returns to investors? How do we democratize capital? How do we get kind of um, mum and dad investors in the local postcode to invest in housing futures for the people around them rather than kind of relying on other third-party developers to come and develop that. So that was the fundamental idea of Nightingale housing. Um, and then, yeah, I think that by, you know, the, the, the early model, and I'll talk about the later work, how we've evolved now, but the early model basically saying we're going to cap the returns to investors uh. at 15% per annum for three years. So, um, you know, it incentivized the projects to be delivered, you know, quickly to get that money back. And then any money left over was to be given back to the residents on completion. Yeah. You know? Wow. Wow. So the first, <laughs> so, so, so by the time we then start work on Nightingale one, that, that waiting list that the people are emailing me grows to 57. And, um, so, I mean, we don't need an agent. Instead, we have information sessions. Yeah. We present the building and I think, Chris, this is the, the trust thing. So and then we present everything to everyone, warts and all, you know, and say, here it is. It's great. It's really great location, but it's in an urban renewal area. All these single story warehouses around you are going to change over the future. And we don't know what that's going to be like. Uh, You're right next to the train and the train's really loud. Yeah. So, <laughs> and we're designing you, a, we're designing you a building that operates without air conditioning. But if you've got your window open, you are going to hear the train. It's going to feel very, very close to you. So understand all of those things. So we go through all of that. And I think, interestingly, by presenting all of that transparently, it just built trust, right? So anyway, so we, we have a ballot and we sell 100% of the apartments in one day, you know, and we're like, wow, that's interesting. We then go on and in that building, when that's completed, wins the National Award for Housing and the National Award for Sustainability. And we're like, oh, this is an interesting trajectory. <laughs> we then get a couple of government grants, you know, like of $100,000, $50,000, uh, you know, we, we employ our first employee, we establish, uh, a not-for-profit to Nightingale Housing as the not-for-profit. Um, and then the, the minute kind of that happens and we've got a centralized team trying to deliver on it, we then start to, you know, that we've got, a, we've got a website now that's not just a $99 Squarespace website, you know, actually it was still a Squarespace website those days, but the, Someone but the registrations, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, like one of my graduate architects, but the the waiting list grew from fifty seven to four hundred uh, to three thousand to five thousand. You know, yeah. So and I, and I say it's a waiting list. It's not really. It's 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 a it, it's people that are interested, right? So there's now yeah. seventeen thousand people on there. Jeez. And so when we when we when we ballot a building now, you know, so we just balloted the building in December uh, last year, right? When everyone else is saying. It's impossible to sell apartments ever. <laughs> and Nightingale, you know, has then gone from Nightingale 1 uh, to Nightingale 2 in Fairfield by six degrees. Uh, Nightingale Brunswick East, a collaboration with the developer. Uh, Nightingale Anstey, Nightingale Village, which is 
six buildings by six of the country's best architects, uh, building a carbon-neutral precinct, 203 apartments in total, 15 share cars, uh, Momentum Energy partnering with us, donating electric vehicles to the project, Momentum giving us uh, 100% certified green power at a bulk buy rate and a three-year contract protecting everyone's cost of electricity. Everyone's buying super cheap green power with no carbon associated with it. Um, we've got, you know, tapware partners now, Sussex Taps that build carbon neutral tapware, you know, so they've, so they've got, they've got like solar panels on their roof, like a gigawatt of solar panels or something. They've got an electric induction furnace. They're using recycled brass to build carbon neutral tapware. We've got a brick company, Brickworks, that are now making us carbon neutral bricks. And we've now got an appliance partner that is saying that they're going to make us carbon neutral appliances. So we feel like we've been able to help shift mm. the market, you know, to help come to us to not only deal with their ongoing carbon, but our upfront carbon as well, which is kind of incredible. But yeah, like, you know, and why does Nightingale keep selling? Is it more affordable? And I don't think it is, Veronica, to be totally honest. And I want to tell you why, mm. which is even though we're building it not for profit, we care deeply about quality because Chris, all the things that you talked about, you know, we care, you know, what, what's the lived experience going to be like? And we build buildings to last 150 years. So if we, if we care, and we care deeply about our reputation, right? Because we want to be able to do this, you know, in perpetuity. So, um, we now have, uh, 20% of our housing is sold to a community housing provider, like women's property initiatives or housing choices. 20% goes to a priority ballot. So what we call key community contributors. So First Nations Australians, people with a disability, carers, people with a disability, uh, in nurses, teachers. Um, and what we've seen through COVID is actually essential workers, the people you need to operate a city, yeah. you know. So they all sit within our, our priority ballot. That's all means tested. So it's kind of like our affordable housing piece. And the last 60% goes in the general ballot. And, um, some of our apartments, we sell for a lot. So we push to the upper end of what market is. And so we'll sell a really great three bedroom on a level with a great big rooftop deck and we'll sell it for, you know, let's say at market or above market. And then we'll use that to cross subsidize a 215,000 tile house apartment in the middle of Brunswick, which costs us $280,000 to build, but we'll sell it for 215. So we have this like really bizarre pricing structure mm. where we st we have very, very affordable housing. And then we have some other housing, which is really expensive with great amenity. Um, it's all 10 year blind, which means it's all got the same materials, the same finishes, but some of them just have different aspect and different outlook and, you know, uh, different amenity. But, you know, those tile house apartments that we're talking about at $215,000 or $250,000, uh, they're small footprint apartments that we generally sell to our uh, key community contributors, our priority ballot. And that used to be millennials, right? 25 to 35 tr trying desperately to get into the sure. housing market. In the last few ballots, you'll never believe it, but the biggest cohort balloting for that is single women aged over 55 sure. desperately trying to secure their housing future. So, sure. um, I mean, that's incredibly worrying, right? So, yeah, look, it's changed a lot over time. We've delivered about 500 apartments to date. We've got about um, another 500 underway. Um, I was, you know, the founder. I let it run for a couple of years. I came back in as kind of acting managing director for about five years. I've stepped back out now. 
I sit on the board, so I just have to go to board meetings once every six weeks. But, you know, the team, you know, as you've met some of them, they're incredibly uh, diligent, uh, intelligent, tenacious individuals. And that team is led by a new CEO, Dan McKenna. And so they've got a big kind of pipeline of work and they're, they're trying to scale that. But, but also, I think the goal of Nightingale is not to try and solve the housing problem. But Veronica, to your point earlier, it's to try and show what's possible yeah. and what makes sense. And then we see other people at the same time as us, like Assemble coming yep. through, delivering, just like us, 100% electric buildings, just like us buying 100% certified green power, doing 20% social, doing 20% affordable, um, meeting our, you know, um, doing the same kind of sustainability uh, outcomes as us, which is, you know, minimum seven and a half star NatHERS energy rating, not minimum five star. Um, so... We, and when we see Assemble coming to do that, that helps shift the entire market. Yeah. And then we see boutique developers like Milieu coming in saying, Jeremy, we'd like to do uh, apartments with all the same Nightingale cred- credentials, but we want to offer people the ability to buy a car park if they want. We want to give them the ability to, uh, to add on an air conditioner if they can afford it and they want to do that. We want to give them the ability to buy uh, a laundry if, if if they want. What do you think? And I'm like, absolutely. And so Milieu have now, you know, they're B Corp certified now. They've now, they're now delivering on all of the Nightingale, you know, sustainability principles. And they're doing that through all of their projects. And now if anything in, in Brunswick, Collingwood, Fitzroy, like anything in kind of the inner north of Melbourne, like everyone's talking about, you know, 100% electric buildings. Everyone's talking about green power. Uh, everyone's talking about, you know, minimum seven and a half stars. You know, it's, I think, Veronica, what it has done is helped, it, it, it's helped kind of free it up for the rest of the market to say, this is what you can do. I'm on a personal mission to help more people make better property decisions. And you can find out all about what I'm working on at veronicamorgan.com.au. And there you'll find resources for first home buyers, details about my buyer's agent mentoring program, access to suburb help for investors, or if you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or lower north shore, you can connect with my team at Good Deeds Property Buyers. If you're thinking about buying your first home, upgrading to a new one, or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, we would love to carefully guide you through this journey and importantly, get the finance right. Please reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. Don't forget that you can download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au. Well, I think that we need to stop coming up with ideas and we need to focus on the big issue at the moment, which is carbon. <laughs> so I, th- I think that there's lots of, you know, there's, there's lots of people talking about lots of things, but we just need to solve for carbon immediately. And so the big thing is no more gas, you know, so we have to electrify absolutely everything. Uh, and that's our, that's our, that's our, you know, our single biggest carbon emissions come from the built in environment. And two-thirds of those carbon emissions come from building operations. So the minute you electrify everything, then obviously we need the Mike Cannon-Brooks of the world to go and take over AGL <laughs> to then get AGL to you know invest in more green tech. But at, but at least now we've got the ability, if everything is electrified, for our grid to then be decarbonized and for us to live you know in a carbon-neutral way. And then I think, Chris, the other big... The, the, the big thing for us, the big hurdle to, to 
to clear after that is embodied carbon. So how do we build a building and solve for its carbon that's in it? And that's that's the next big hard thing. And, you know, some players like, you know, Lend Lease, um, you know, are already kind of, you know, looking at that. We've, we're doing life cycle assessment, you know, on all of our buildings now, measuring all the carbon that's going into it. And then we're trying to solve how do we take that out. And part of the answer to that is, you know, suppliers and partners that are paying down their own carbon. And part of it is designing, you know, with timber, with cement replacement concrete, with geopolymer concrete, with um, green steel, with green aluminium, you know, all of those things. If you think about solar panels being part of the operational carbon, so that's two thirds of the problem. One third of the problem is embodied carbon. That's all the staff that's gone in to, you know, if you're buying tiles in Italy or something Mm. that's being shipped halfway around the world, incredibly carbon intensive. How do we solve for that, you know? And that's the, you know, I'll get back to you in 2030 when I've got an answer to, we can solve for about 50% of that currently at Breathe. We don't know how to solve for the last 50% yet. And that's truly because of where, like, building materials are manufactured. And and is that because, uh, look, years and years and years ago, I used to work in the plumbing industry, and, and it seemed to be that all ball bearings were made in Italy. It's, you know, I think <laughs> the ball bearing, uh, sorry, no, ball joints, ball ball. Ball valves. No, I'm thinking I've got to kind yeah. of remember. Ball valves. Yeah. They're all yeah. made in Italy, right? They must have been uh, invented by an Italian. And it's like you couldn't buy them anywhere that were made anywhere else. And I know there's a whole bunch of things that are made in various countries and part of the, our supply chain problems uh, as a result of all our lockdowns and all the rest of it has been because of that, right? And so then there's a big argument about decentralisation of, of supply chains, et cetera, et cetera. And that Australia hasn't necessarily done itself any favours by allowing ourselves to become global and part of the global world, global um, e- economy. But I was watching. There's a there's a scientist. She's a professor at UNSW, and I wish I could remember her name. She's been on television as well, and I'm trying to think of her name. And she's created these micro factories that re they basically create all sorts of material out of recycling. Like she goes in chip packets and you know, plastic bags and milk bottles and all sorts of stuff. Is there a future where you actually be creating a lot of your own building materials on site with these mobile micro factories? Is that part of the plan? I mean, I wish I could remember her name. <laughs> Have you heard of her? UNSW. Oh, She's I, amazing. I, I think that I've, I think I've seen um, like a thing on ABC. Yeah. I think I think I know the woman that you're talking about. But um, I think that a lot of the answers to this are obviously in, um, there's got to be an economy of scale solution right, to that. Right, so it's not, my, it's not we're you, not if, going micro to solve the problem. No, I don't think so. Despite the fact like, we're creating uh, villages. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's right. Yeah, yeah, correct. Um, but if you think about, you know, why can we, um, you know, like why can we buy a car, you know, at the price we can with, uh, you know, 50,000 moving parts in it, and it's because it's made in a factory, in a centralised plant that's got a production line, you know, five kilometres long. And that, you know, that there's an economy of scale thing, or, you know, or if you're doing a- But every building is any- different. So, well, you know what I mean? Does it need to be? <laughs> well, maybe not. No, that's, I guess that's where we're going here, isn't it? It's like every site's got its own unique- That's controversial as an architect to <laughs> yeah, say yeah, that, yeah. by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We talk about scarcity when it comes to property too, so it's probably, we shouldn't be, um, you know, <laughs> suggesting yeah, I'm not, I'm not, yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, Look, we, uh, let's, we can have this conversation, but I, I do think that, you know, obviously things can happen, you know, offsite in a factory environment that's very, very difficult to replicate on a tight urban site, uh-huh. um, you know, with trade, labor, 
you know, rather than, you know, uh, a CNC machine, you know, punching out, you know, a hundred, you know, widgets a minute, you know, so. So that's I utopian, do, I do think that there's, thinking even. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. I think the local thing is really important. So what, you know, how do you build a low carbon, you know, building, you know, ideally you use carbon sequesters rather than carbon emitters. So you use timber where possible for your structure. You know, you would use local materials where possible. So if you're in Victoria, you use, um, you know, you, you lose local bluestone. Mm. If you're in Sydney, you use local sandstone. Um, and then ideally you use materials as close to their natural state as possible. So if you're using a timber floor and it's, you know, and it's a recycled timber floor, for example, even if it's a new timber floor from an FSC forestry source that, you know, you're getting, you know, out of a plantation, you know, um, near the west of Sydney somewhere. Mm. When you get that and you put it through the mill and you kill and dry it and you take it to a site, it's a carbon sequester, but you haven't spent all of these carbon miles or carbon and energy, you know, milling it overseas, mm. t- taking it to Malaysia, laying it up in a, as an engineered floorboard with a hybrid of other products, which then means it has no recyclability or end mm. of use, then bring it to site and then adhering it to, you know, a substrate with adhesive, which again means... It has no recyclability. So, that, you know, you can still have a timber floor. One is a carbon sequester and one is a kind of a, a cradle to grave environmental nightmare. To, your, to both of your earlier point about our sprawl issue in Melbourne, you know, Melbourne is very, you know, largely pretty flat. You know, it's stretching out to the east and the west. You know, it won't, you know, there's nothing to stop us, you know, really just, you know, swallowing up our entire coastline. We've currently built over 40% of our farming land uh, here, all of our good arable soils. And we have the third biggest houses in the world mm-hmm. after Canada and the US. So yeah, 50 years ago, we had houses that were one quarter of the size and our family unit size was twice what it currently is now. So per capita, we have massive amounts of house for what we actually need to live in. Um, <laughs> so yeah, Chris, I think that we could definitely take a, and I'm not saying that we need to live like a very austere Japanese family, but I think that we could look to those people that live with what they need rather than what they've seen in the magazine. I think that would be a... It's, it's really hard, though, because behaviour change, like in Bill Gates' book, How to Avoid a Climate Disaster, his premise is that humans, we can't rely on behaviour change. It has to be It has to be driven by government and by big corporations because humans... No matter how much they want to change, they actually just can't help themselves. But it's also because we're affluent. You know, at the at the end of the day, I mean, I was watching a really interesting presentation. It was part of a UNSW sort of short course I was doing. And, and there's been quite a lot of research that's gone into effectively proving that our climate problem is largely created through affluence and that yep. we don't. We're not feeling the pain of it, um, and we won't feel the pain of it till it's too late at this rate that we're going. Um, and so, therefore, wh- what's the incentive to change behaviour? You know, I'm not hurting. I'm actually enjoying my affluence. Thank you very much. I live in a country with loads of space, and we're all pretty well off. And and there's this, you know, like I said, if, if it's not hurting you, why would you even worry about, you know, why why should I, you know, forego, why should I have to spend 99 cents buying a green bag when for 20, isn't 20 cents I could buy a plastic one? I love these, you know, these single-use bag ban and then they allow them to, <laughs> to create a, a heavier weight plastic bag with the assumption that people are going to actually use it more often. 
it just makes me laugh. But anyway, yeah. cry. Uh, I do think so. Like I think that, you know, some of the bigger companies you think about, you know, uh, GPT, Vicinity, uh, like big property companies, Lendlease, Mervac, like they've all got pathways to net zero, you know, where they've all, they've all got transitions, you know, away from gas, you know, uh, Lendlease have come out and supported the Global CookSafe Coalition saying we're not going to plumb gas into any of our new buildings, you know, not just from a sustainability mm. point of view, but from an indoor air quality point of view. <laughs> And obviously, they ha- they all have shareholders, right? And all the shareholders, and the and the directors that sit on the board, uh, you know, the directors all I think have responsibility or exposed to risk now. Yeah. You know, so we've seen a couple of court cases in the Netherlands where you know boards have been taken and and you know uh, directors have been taken to court about you know not meeting the requirements of climate change. They have a responsibility, you know, beyond uh, just immediate uh, return to their shareholders. They've also got reputational risk. But I, I mean, I've, I work with a lot of developers that um, that do care about sustainability, and whether it whether it's for their brand or whether it's for their sales or their market position, they know now that people want to be able to buy um, a home and not feel guilty about it. You know, I think that that's that's the key part of it. And back to one of like what I did want to cover off was that it's really interesting around here seeing that buildings that are sustainable and buildings that have community and really kind of focus on kind of maybe smaller community size have been selling really well around here. And so I did just want to touch on that, Veronica, saying it's been really interesting to watch that developers that kind of are delivering something uh, like that about sustainability and community have been selling well and other buildings that just, are, you know, business as usual, you know, pretty sad stuff, just not moving, you know, because... You know, I mean, for a number of reasons, and, and nor should they, but it's been interesting. And also watching the Nightingale projects or the Commons projects and their resale values. So the Commons, when we finished the Commons, the first project, there was no restrictive resales caveat on it. It was just sold by a real estate agent. And we never really, we just always thought that, I never really thought through how would that affordability be protected in the mm, future. Mm. So the Commons, which sold, is probably the kind of the cheapest apartment building in Brunswick in whenever that sold, 2000 and 2011, I guess. It's now like the retirement home for rich hippies, right? It's become <laughs> the most the most expensive apartment in Brunswick. It's crazy. Wow. And initially, I was really upset about that. And then it's actually been, I think, really good because it's helped me see that there is a market for that in the open marketplace. Yep. And I think it's really helped Nightingale to look at that and say, okay, well, that's that's what people want and how do we protect affordability into the future? So Nightingale has a resale caveat, which caps the resale at the um, indexing of the housing prices in the suburb. <laughs> um, and, and that's been pretty interesting to watch that in Melbourne over the last couple of years, I mean, before this current dip, because house prices in Nightingales were going through the roof just because they were linked to housing, not not units. But you know, so but it has been it has been interesting to watch that. And so, if you think about freestanding houses, you know, going up, being worth more, and then kind of townhouses and villas being you know appreciating not quite as much. Nightingale was kind of appreciating in line with townhouses and villas, and then obviously there were units which were kind of a, you know appreciating not much at all or kind of flatlining. But isn't so it's been interesting that to watch that. Partly because they were a lot cheaper in the first place, so they're coming up a lower base. Um, <laughs> yes, Veronica. <laughs> so <laughs> probably you guys could probably see through yeah, all that. Yeah, I, but yeah. But but it is fascinating because, of course, like what you're saying. I mean, then you're testing. Well, what what what's the open market? Um, you know, 
capacity or, or demand for this sort of thing. And I was wondering, because, you know, we talk about Brunswick, we talk about, um, you know, Newtown or Marrickville in Sydney, it, yes, left-leaning. And I look, anyone might think I'm a lefty. I'm actually a swinging voter, but I do sort of lean left, I guess. I, I'm, I'm a moderate. I'm a moderate <laughs> who might lean left at times. Um, so I'm not, I'm, you know, but, and I'm also a bit of a, my own personal environmental warrior. Anyway, that, that, that aside, does the model, would the model work in other areas that are not so left-leaning, I guess is a question, but also, um, and I guess then you look at, on a political sense, you look at the, the, what the Teals have done, so to prove that there actually there are a lot of moderate liberal voters that, um, that certainly are concerned about the environment. But I'm also really curious, why is... Why is all this happening in Melbourne? Why is this not happening in Sydney? Do you have any views on that? Yeah, absolutely. There's a really, firstly, about your question, you know, does it, does it work across the aisle? Is it, do you need to be ideological to live in a Nightingale? And I would like to think absolutely not. I mean, initially the first Nightingale was, you know, of 20 apartments, you know, 19 with tertiary educated white people, yeah. you know? Heaps of architects, graduate architects, graphic designers, you know, you can imagine. Now we've got people from all walks of life, you know, um, and so it's, it's definitely becoming more diverse and more mainstream, which is, you know, exactly what we want. Wow. And I would hope that, you know, and when we're working with women's property initiatives or housing choices, that they're housing people based on need, uh, not on, you know, on where they vote. So mm. I think that, yeah, ideally we're housing everyone. I think, too, with the kind of numbers that Assemble are talking about, you know, they're going to be housing people, you know, providing them with green power. And they, and and the type of numbers they're talking about, they're going to be housing people from all walks of life yeah. there. Yeah. Why aren't we in Sydney? Yeah. <laughs> um, because uh, not only is construction prices very, very high, but land prices in Sydney are crazy. Even next to so, railway uh, lines? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, interestingly, we, we ran a whole bunch of feasibilities uh, looking at Sydney we were buying land in Melbourne at about $80,000 per apartment. That's how much it was costing us wow. you know, for the land portion for each of the apartments. And in Sydney, at the same time, we were running numbers on feasibilities, dropping out at kind of 200, 210, 220 per apartment. Wow. So, you know, for us to be able to build, and we like to build, you know, Nightingale's kind of ideal community is kind of, you know, 40 apartments or less. Mm. So smaller community, everyone gets to know each other. So for us to do that in Sydney... It was going to add, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars to the price of the apartment. And for us, what that uh, looked like was that when, when we kind of looked at, you know, our average earnings, it was still going to be the sons and daughters of CEOs, all only tertiary educated people, you know, it was, um, and so we thought that it was just going to be uh, too far off our mission to be able to do it. So Sid, we do have you, one, what you're saying then we, is Sydney is too unaffordable to be able to have an affordable solution. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh. It's a bit scary, isn't it? When you no, no, it's 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 really scary. Yeah. So so the only way that we've been able to come to Sydney is that we've w been working with a group called Fresh Hope Communities. They're a faith based organisation. Um, they've got kind of you know a series of churches around Sydney, um, and they've also got uh, do a lot of aged care. They're community housing providers as well. Um, anyway, we met with them. They wanted to get into you know trying to deliver on their mission. They had a church in Marrickville that they hadn't used for 13 years. And they said that they would donate that to it to do a Nightingale project. Yeah, right. So they donated the land. Um, they they put up the funding. 
Uh, they've taken all the financial risk on it. So without that, without Fresh Hope Communities, it, it would have been impossible for Nightingale to come. So yeah, we've right. currently got got our first Nightingale under construction in Marrickville, 150 metres um, from the Marrickville train station. And, um, it, you know, uh, yeah, it's so, so, yeah, it's been, um, it's been really, really hard, you know, mm. uh, not just that, but dealing with the, dealing with the local council, the, council. With the Inner West Council, <laughs> you know, um, so we, we had, we had early support from the Inner West Council and, um, you know, it's been, it's been difficult. So, yeah. you know, watch this space. Watch, Interesting. Watch this space. I was going to say it's under construction. It will be it will be fifty five dwellings that that are all kind of you know studios. They'll be owned by the church, but they'll be tenanted by Nightingale Housing, mm. and they'll be long term rental. Mm. So we can't afford to to do a build to sell model there. Yeah, I'm really sorry, Chris. Let me. No, ch- no, I think we're off. just going to finish it up now with a with a property Dumbo. I think uh, you got plenty of stories, so I don't, I don't want to miss this segment on this episode. So, have you got a um, property Dumbo for us? So basically, a story or ideally humorous where. Uh, Someone's done something that's uh, a mistake not, we can learn it, off. <laughs> it's Maybe not, not humorous. Some. It's 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 tragic. So <laughs> again, let's just let's assume that I'm uh, you know that 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 I'm not attached to any side of politics. But I'm going to talk about all the millennials who didn't own housing in 2019 <laughs> that were offered a policy shift that was going to axe capital gains tax exemptions. And would be the only serious kind of attempt by a federal government to change tax settings around housing. And we can debate all day whether that would work or not. But what we can all agree on is that the housing system is absolutely broken. And um, as a game of Monopoly, if you're a baby boomer, congratulations. You've been on the board long enough to own everything. Well done. And if you're a millennial, my God, I'm sorry. Just work harder for the next nine years and get that deposit. You'll be fine. <laughs> um, but... Yeah, the, the big dumbo for me, Chris, was that the election policy agenda that looked to change, you know, the affordability settings or to to exit, you know, investors out of the, uh, or to make it investing in housing look less appetising. I thought that was the change for millennials uh, to be able to reduce their housing and give them access to housing. And uh, so many of them voted uh, to keep settings as they were because I think that they thought that at some point they would be in the position where they too could own investment properties and have 50% capital gains tax exemptions on their profits. So that's uh, the biggest Dumbo moment for me. Uh, the, the other Dumbo moment is that, yeah, if you were born in the 90s, you should have gone back and been born in the 40s or the 50s. That would have been heaps easier for you. <laughs> <laughs> I think we'll leave if that. Only. We'll leave that there. <laughs> I could, we could have a whole other episode on that, on your Dumbo, uh, on the first part of your Dumbo, which I'm not, yeah. I'm not going to take the bait. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was hoping you would. We, we should have started that. Yeah, we started yeah. earlier. We don't yeah, have time to exactly. take the bait. <laughs> you know. <laughs> I was watching. I was watching Chris just then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was like, should I say something? Should I not? <laughs> But I, you, one two, thing I will, you two can get stuck into me next week. It's fine. One, one thing I was going to say, I think that you're right. You didn't mention negative gearing, which, um, but it's all about the investment. We've got a rental affordability crisis yeah. as well, so we've got to be a bit careful what we say around, um, you know, uh, look, not I, encouraging. I, 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 I yeah. agree. It's yeah. not. It's it's it, and I, and I've had smart economists tell me why that doesn't work. But I, you know, I, I feel like that you know, the capital gains tax thing is an issue. It's ultimately it's a. Um, 
because it is so enticing um, to not sell because your tax is so low um, and, you know, just leave the money there. And, you know, you're saying that though, if the tax was high, you'd be less likely to sell it. You'd want to just yeah, hold exactly. it because you don't want to pay the tax. But ultimately, it's very generous. It, you know, keeps on accruing wealth and you only have to pay 25% well, It could be, could be worse. It could be in New Zealand. You get a 100% capital gains tax exemption after 10 years in NZ. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. There's an incentive to keep property probably in the rental market at least for 10 years. But, but do you know, just very, very quickly, I will say that from memory, I, I think the, the policy was around negative gearing, not capital gains tax. And at the time, I certainly was against the argument um, for uh, the Labor policy. Um, and they weren't touching capital gains tax. And, you know, the, the Howard government brought the exemption in to simplify, you know, the counting of it, basically, because it's meant to... Um, be an offset against inflation. But of course, we've had a very, very low inflationary environment, notwithstanding the last you know year. Um, and so therefore, the argument is that it, the, the concession is now too high because inflation has been nowhere. So it's to take out that that impact of inflation on. And so you're not double double paying effectively. Um, but yeah, I, uh, but it's that's the thing that that seemed to be too uh, problematic to tackle. And I agree with you. I think that that does need to be looked at. But the negative gearing side of things, I think, was just that's the sort of what they were looking at as being the easy, easy fry. And to be honest, there's been a lot of modelling that says that if you change that, it won't make any difference to to prices. So, you know, jury's out on that yeah. one. But I, I yeah. thought yeah, it was look, a shocking uh, policy personally. And, yeah. and look at our rental crisis at the moment. So, sorry, I did take the bait after all. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought it was the best policy since Whitlam, but anyway, yeah. we, we'll, we'll debate it another time. Exactly. Uh, it's been so lovely chatting to you, Jeremy. We really, it's been great to hear the story behind Nightingale and also just, the, I guess, the surprises that have come along the way. And it's wonderful to see that there's a model out there that is working and that others are starting to adopt parts of and, and, and put their own brand uh, into it as well. And, you know, and I guess that gives us hope, maybe not in Sydney, but elsewhere, it oh, sounds like there's I some think, hope. <laughs> yeah. And also, I want to thank you both uh, again for, you know, helping educate a generation on trying to navigate the housing system. And, and I think that you've both been uh, instrumental in, you know, a couple of the people that work with me, like young graduate architects, about helping them kind of formulate a strategy and a pathway to kind of, you know, getting their deposit together and getting you know um getting purchase ready so good on you because i think that there's lots of work yep. to do yep. with uh thank you we appreciate it thank you awesome mm. thanks for chatting jeremy yeah if you have a question that you'd like us to answer in an upcoming q a episode you can send us a voicemail or written question via the website theelephantintheroom.com.au or you can email us directly at questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au if you like what you're hearing, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars would be great. I know that sounds a bit cringy, but we have it on good authority that every review helps make it easier for other people to find out about us and hear what our amazing guests have to say.